listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, Mark from the Jersey Guys Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Today we've got a brand new episode for you where we talk with Robert Berry. Uh, Robert's got a brand new band by the name of Six by Six, where he joined up with Ian Crichton from Saga and Nigel Glockler from the band Saxon. And uh, so we're going to talk about that album, which came out at the uh, second half of last year. Uh, It was a great album, and uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the work on the brand new Six by Six album, which should be out sometime in 2023 and uh, we talk about Robert's whole career really Um, people might know Robert from 1988 when he was in the band three uh, which had Carl Palmer and Keith Emerson from ELP fame and uh, they had a great album uh, titled uh, to the power of three and uh, so we talk about that we talk about Robert's solo career uh, his band Alliance which he's released a number of albums um, over the years with and uh, we talk about everything that Robert's done so it was a great conversation and uh, let's get right to this one with Robert Berry hey Robert thanks for joining us here on the Jersey Guys podcast Tom and I really appreciate you talking to us tonight Hey, the, Mark and Tom, I'm really uh, pleased to be talking to you guys. I love the, the area you're at. I've played there a few times. I see that Mark and I have a little history from a, a place we played a couple of years ago, and I'm excited to hear uh, what you guys are thinking. Well, I wanted to start with um, congratulating you on the new uh, 6 by 6 album. Uh, it just came out tail end of last year. I am so pleased with that. As you probably know, that I was working with Keith Emerson to do another three album, and he died in the middle of it. Actually, committed suicide, which was really devastating. Yeah. Especially since doing the music together was kind of his happy place, and I had no idea what he was going through at home and and health wise and stuff. Because I was this was his happy place. We were writing and recording, you know, and doing stuff. So after that, my manager said well, what are you going to do now? The three, two albums have done really well and people seem to receive it uh, quite well. And I said, you know, I'd like to find a guy like Keith, but a guitar player, somebody that writes these iconic parts, you know, with Emerson, you always can tell when he made up and he wrote something and played it, it sounded like him. Mm. And, you know, there's only a few guitar players. We just lost one of the greatest Jeff Beck, um, you know, you could tell him, Eddie Van Halen, you could tell, uh, maybe Richie Blackmore. I mean, there's some, some guys you can tell, but um, not a lot of them you can tell just you you hear a first couple of bars. Like Keith Richards. Oh, well, that's got to be the Stones coming on, right? You got those riffs going. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my manager, Nick, over there in England said, let's think about that. And he called me the next day and he said, what about Ian Crichton? I went, oh, my God, I wouldn't have thought of Ian because he's always been with Saga. And. He was exactly the kind of guy that's identifiable when you hear his playing. And I said, yeah, but why would he want to do something? He's a saga. And it just so happened he was a three fan. Uh, we had played Canada back in 88, you know, and um, 
we talked and he was looking to do something. He wanted to do a three piece. And I wasn't especially thinking three, I think it may be a four piece, but I said, well, I'm willing to try that. Let's give it a try and, and, and start writing. So he sent me these little nuggets, just like Emerson used to. These things that were so uniquely like Ian Crichton's guitar playing that has inspired me to write songs from him and the lyrics and everything. He'd send me these weird titles. Um, and sometimes they were James Bond movies. Like we're working on now one called Wren, which is a bird. It has nothing to do with the song, but the little guitar party, he likes to name them things so he knows what they are in his hard drive. And sometimes they turn into the song. Sometimes they're not in the title or anything, but it was just a match made in heaven. And I'm glad you have, you have heard it. You're aware of it. And uh, it seems to be well received by, I hate to say everybody, but it's been really good. Yeah, no. Well, you know what? Uh, Tom and I actually just recorded a, uh, a best of 2022 and we got a pile of our favorite CDs from the past year. And uh, Tom had that on his list there, right, Tom? As, uh, I had it as number one, actually, but that's... Uh... Well, Tom, I, I think at this point we can remove Mark from the interview. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had it. You go, you go, it's actually up on uh, YouTube. So if you don't believe me, you could check it out. I had it as number one. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. It's my bet, favorite album of 2022. I'm always going to give you a bad time. So prepare yourself. Okay. No, no, no. We, we, we like we're much appreciated. We're, we're Jersey guys. We can take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I wanted to ask, and, and you kind of started to explain it, but um, I want to get the other guy that's involved in Six by Six. How, how does a an American and a Canadian and a Brit kind of get together and, and do this? You, you got Nigel Glockler, uh, set the heavy metal band Saxon. Yeah. So how, how did how did he come into the picture? You know, it sounds like there had to be some drinking in a pub or something, right, for me to make that happen. Actually, you know, I was in England in '86. And Carl Palmer and I were trying to put a band together. And we worked with a bunch of people, Don Aries from Ozzy's band, and uh, he was in Deep Purple, all kinds of different people. And it wasn't working. And all of a sudden, I get a call from Steve Howe that says, look, Steve Hack is leaving GTR. Um, I've heard your cassette tape at the time. And he goes, would you like to come to the house and talk about it tomorrow? I said, wow, okay, yeah. Yes was top of my list at the point, too, of a favorite band. I went to Steve's house, got some songs from him. I took them back to my flat there, um, and I sort of rewrote them all to what I thought GTR would be doing the best as, and took it back to Steve, and he really liked that, and we got a writing partnership going, and I joined GTR. And one of the things I had mentioned was, God, you know, it, that first album, the drums are so muddy, and I said, are you going to use that same guy? He goes, No. I think we're going to bring in Nigel Glockler. Really? So, yeah, I didn't know who Nigel was. Yeah. And uh, so I show up for rehearsal and there's Nigel. He was such a nice guy. Um, he told me just a year ago, we got together again. He was really scared to go work with Steve Howe. He was nervous about it. I bet. And uh, he was a prog head, even though he played in the metal band. Even at that point, he was playing with Saxon. He left them. Um, I'm not exactly sure why that happened, but um, he well, left them for GTR, maybe. And I was just really impressed with how solid he was, but the feel, sort of like Alan White joining Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, Bill Burton was great, but Alan White locked it down in a different way. And I always remembered that. And when Ian and I had got about six songs written and said, you know what, this is going to fly. We really need to, you know, 
let's shop a record company, but we need a band too. What about a drummer? And I said, top of my list has to be Nigel Glocker. And he goes, well, I know him. We played with Saxon a bit, but I don't really know him as what kind of drums. I said, trust me, the guy will be our John Bonham. He'll just be so solid, but he can play the prog parts too. You know, we can expand things. I got him down. I, I flew uh, Nigel in to my studio here. I have a state-of-the-art studio with kind of the best of everything that I've accumulated over the years. And he did the drums to the songs, and we got it back to Ian, and Ian did some guitars at home, did some stuff here. Um, and it just worked. I don't, I, it's hard to say. It had the right ingredients for us all to fit. We sort of do exactly what we do the way we do it, but when it came together, it became something different than the three of us in the past. And so that's how Nigel got in. Do you foresee yourselves doing any shows with this lineup? Yeah. You know, I, I've been a little bit down here the last couple of weeks because the, the plan was to tour in March. And the guy that is our promoter and agent over there got so busy doing a Jethro Tull tour that he couldn't get the dates put together because Jethro Tull, of course, is doing a huge tour over there and he was overwhelmed. So it got put back to September. But it's going to be in Europe to start with. Um, right now, actually, we're looking for an agent in the Canada and the U.S. to put some dates here and uh, see what we can come up with. Both guys are excited to go out with six by six. Of course I am, but I'm not in another band right now, except for my band Alliance, which doesn't really play out. We do albums every five to six years, you know. Um, but as the plan, September, September, October, uh, Europe. And the hope is we find an agent here that can sort of open up some venues. One of the problems of being a new band and we are brand new, too, because it was my big idea. I thought it was so wise to not tell anybody until the album came out, until that first single came out in June, maybe it was last year. So nobody knew except for our wives and the manager, right? Let's keep it a secret. A record company we signed to, a great record company, Sony Inside Out Records. And we kept it a secret. I thought this would be really cool. You just come out and see what people think. Well, the only problem with that is you have no nothing to talk about. You have no history. You have no draw. You don't have anything. You're just taking a shot, like rolling the dice, you know. And it went big right away, around the world, really. But you have to be a little bit more, I don't know, embedded in, I don't know, sales and reviews and everything else to get the gigs with these promoters because they have to see some results like track record. So that, yeah, that hurts us here more than it hurts us in Europe. Right. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the writing process of this album, because when I heard it, I, I mean, I've, I own pr pretty much everything you've ever recorded. So I know the quality is there, but the, the partnership with, with Ian on guitar, I, what was the, where did you come up with these songs? The songs are so strong on this album. Was it stuff you were sitting on for a while, or did you collaborate with Ian? And how did these songs come about? Yeah, like I said before, you know, Emerson had these little nuggets, these things he'd send me, and I'd make songs out of them. And I was looking for the same thing, but from a guitar player. And what's funny is Ian, half the stuff, yeah, a third of it maybe, was stuff that 
Saga, which of course his brother is the leader of, mm-hmm. or was, he left was, the band yeah. now. But yeah, but he was really hard on Ian's stuff, evidentially what he sent in, because if it had a little or a little too much distortion, you go, all right, clean that up. We don't want to use that, you know? So Ian had all these little incredibly great parts. We hear some of the intro guitar riffs, all the guitar riffs. I mean, honestly, everything guitar in that album is Ian's ideas. None of those are my guitar ideas. And what he had to do is between, you know, those intro riffs and maybe some of the rhythms and things on the the, the verses and a little hook here and there, he had to go back and figure out once I wrote the song where it had the verses and it had the chorus chords and all the things, which a lot of times I do on a very simple keyboard because I didn't want to influence him. I, I want him to be who he is to the utmost, you know, 110% Ian Crichton guitar stuff. So I make it very basic, but I have the lyrics, I'd have the song all laid out from beginning to end. If it's four minutes, if it's six minutes, whatever, it'd go from zero to six minutes. And I'd put his little parts that he had sent me to make songs out of where I thought they should go. Kind of like a puzzle where you look at, you know, 500,000 piece puzzle, you got a couple of pieces missing. And he'd have to fill that in. So he'd revisit it. And uh, we just sort of batted it back and forth like that. And now, you know, with FaceTime, with Zoom, you don't have to be in the same room to have the same creative energy together. Yeah, it's just really been wonderful. And, and he and I really hit it off. It just worked. You know, it, it's something both of us wanted to do. I was looking for it. He was looking for it. Um, it's just he wasn't, he wasn't used to somebody gluing all those parts together into a complete song and of course i was used to getting genius level little parts from emerson but he was gone and um for me to get the guitar things that you're hearing on that album i mean at least half of them he sent me to make songs out of the other half of what's on guitar he made up after i made the song so it's just it was meant to be that's all i can say well, he's one of the greatest secrets of guitar players that people don't know about. I mean, you see all the great guitar players, you rarely see his name, unless it's guys that really, you know, that know their shit. But the average fan never mentions this guy. And he's, not, aside right. from his chops, it's his quirky style of playing, which is, you know, he has his own style, obviously. And, yeah. But he managed, he always manages to have these very melodic, hooks inside all this, you know, quirky over the top playing, which is yeah, very few guys could do that. I don't know how he does it. Honestly, he'd send me stuff that I'd go, God, I would never do that. But right. damn, that sounds right. <laughs> there's no power chords. Yeah. There's no, no chunking along. No, like heavy no, no, never, yeah. never. There's none of that. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been a saga fan for 35 years, so I, I'm familiar with, with all their stuff. And he's, he, a guy is a treasure. Like people just don't realize how good he is. And you know, the, the, the songwriting that's behind all his stuff. Well, it also, this freed him up because I think in, sometimes in saga, even though he's playing really cool stuff, it kind of gets lost. It's kind of a keyboard band saga. You know? Oh yeah. Most of the times it's two keyboard players. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the bass is on keyboards too, you know, and, um, which I love Saga. They're a great band. I've always liked them. But it doesn't sort of let him step out the way 6x6 six six does, where it's all on his back, which, by the way, 
another album now, and Ian and I both are feeling a lot of pressure. <laughs> you know, you can imagine we are so well received in the first one. We're thinking, man, we got to make sure this one's really good. Would you bring a fourth member out when you guys, or if you guys do play, would you bring a fourth member out on, I, I would think you'd have to, right? You know, I'm, if we were on FaceTime or Zoom, I'd show you this little keyboard rig I've made here. I'll be playing bass and singing, of course, but I have these little tiny keyboards. The left hand one's for bass and the right one is for the keyboard pads because the keyboards are very simple on the uh, six by six stuff. And I can switch as long as I can get there and not have to walk around this huge keyboard rig. I can be just switch over to left hand bass and right hand keyboards when it's necessary. So I've put that together and um, I don't have my uh, software computer for to, to run the thing, something called main stage. I'm waiting for that. But I am trying to work it out where I could actually play bass guitar and when it needs the keyboards, just slide into the, the keyboard thing all the while singing, you know? So it's a little bit of a Getty Lee kind of job, but I think it can be done. I just watched the, uh, the Triumph documentary and um, Mike Levine and Triumph used to do the same thing too. He had a keyboard rig and playing bass and playing bass with one hand, playing keyboards with the other. And it can be pulled off. I'm sure you could. You know, I, I'm going to try. Uh, I'm a big Getty Lee fan. I mean, the guy's amazing. He's seamless in all the stuff he does. Um, I'm going to have to have a headset mic, and that's uh, something I've never used before. But there's so much for me to do that I can't be. So we'll, we'll see. You know, um, that's the plan. Um, I have in my arsenal, of course, Andrew Collier, who's one of the great key, new keyboard players that I took on my 3.2 tour. And uh, Mark Somm. He is just so solid. He's a doctor, too. Oh, wow. So if you uh, have any nutritional problems or back pain or anything on the tour, well, he'll be able to fix you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was telling Tom just the other day, I, I, I had a little video on my phone of talking about when you did that in the Sellersville show, and uh, we were watching the video, and I said, this keyboard player, he's so great. I said, he, he had this keyboard thing, and he was reaching over on the front, and he was, like, doing this thing, and I was, I was really impressed with him. <laughs> Yeah, you're talking about the the Roly uh, Seaboard, it's called. It's rubber. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, he makes that thing sing. And, you know, I play keyboard, so I tried it. And the feel is so weird. It's like, it'd be like playing your couch if you had keys on it. You know, it just <laughs> feels super weird. And he just got that touchdown, and it was amazing what he could do with that thing. Really great. So I wanted to take you a little bit back in time in some of the back catalog stuff. Robert Berry, In These Eyes, that came out in South Africa. Could you tell me a little? I actually own this CD, Whoa. if you could believe it. I actually <laughs> own the CD. And I know it goes for like hundreds and hundreds of dollars on uh, eBay now. That was an interesting time because I was producing this girl, uh, Michelle Chapel, and her husband was from South Africa, and he had a record label there. And he said, you know, you could get right up the charts because radio is controlled by the government. And I do really well there. He goes, why don't you put an album together? I thought, well, you know, I have these songs that are, well, they're not middle of the road, but they're not really rocking. You know, the kind of uh, musical, like a little bit more like an Asia kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They went through different deals. And I really like that album. I, I like the mixture of all the things. 
Um, when I put it together, I thought, this is great. So I put on his label, he put it out, and apartheid ended, I guess you'd say, which changed the control of everything in South Africa, and the company went bankrupt, and radio wasn't controlled the same way it was. So a lot of good came out of that, but a lot of bad for me came out of it, too. Right, because yeah. <laughs> I, I thought, you know. Right, there were probably like uh, 50 copies in distribution at the time. <laughs> I think they, they put out a 1,000 copies. Really? And I bought 100 of them, you know, here because they were cheap, and I, I wanted to have them. And I, I probably sold a few, and I didn't even, I, I only have a couple of those left. I have to even find them. I try to keep one of each thing I do for each of my, I have two kids, so I got the box with one of each album I've done that someday they'll use to rekindle the fire or something. But I, you know, I want to leave. I, I'll tell you how I got mine. I, I was visiting Khalil Turk in uh, in the UK in the nineties, oh, and he had mm. he had one put aside for me. And that's how I got because it goes. It goes for anytime I've seen it show up on eBay or whatever. It goes for a ton of money. Yeah, there's just it's not around. Khalil, I'm trying to think if we. I think maybe we had put out one Alliance album by the time this came out. I, I don't. You, you did. That's how he was hooked in with you already. So he was already like, yeah, on on everything you ever did, and that's that's how I got hold of that record. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and there were a couple of uh, there were a few songs that ended up on the Taking Taking It Back album, if I'm correct, right? Yes, and that, that's the funny thing. Another record company, that after the album came out, went bankrupt. They went into business. It's like an American, like New York Records or something. I forget what it was called. Um, it was a pretty strong label, and Khalil had, had set me up with that guy, I believe, over there, and they, they were doing well, but I don't know what happened. Um, the funny thing on that album, you know, I was playing with Sammy Hagar then, and I wanted to do a heavier rockin' album, and they wanted a heavier rockin' album. So I said, great, I wrote a bunch of songs, and I'm trying to think, I had a guy here in town that was just starting out with a photographer doing digital art, so I had him do the cover. And this, after um, Three disbanded and all the things I went through, you know, I decided to call um, taking it back, like taking my life back. Mm -hmm. They were goofing around. I don't know which one you have, but the very first one, only uh, about 150 copies got out. The graphic guy was goofing around, and him and the photographer were being funny because the photographer took my pictures, and they put the title as taken in back. And shot in the back, or worse, you know, I'm next to San Francisco. You (laughs) never know what this I, you know, I actually, I actually, I have to, I would have to go look, but I think that's, I think I have that because I kind of, re- now that you said that, I kind of recall there was a little bit yeah. of a, uh, you know, a little bit of back backstage humor on that. Yes. And I just, I didn't know until I got it. They released it. And, you know, the record companies, even with the six by six, we got our albums after other people did. Right. We got our copies. So it was out. And I, I was like, oh, my God, the titles. And I was so mad at this Taking guy it here. Taking in the back, yeah. He just never put it back, you know. Yeah. And he sent it off. And in those days, mid-90s, I mean, I couldn't check it on my computer and stuff. I'd go down to see him. And, of course, he didn't have that title on there on his computer. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, I had them change it. I actually had to pay to have it changed. I think it cost me a thousand dollars in an advanced kind of way too. It didn't come out of my pocket, but eventually it, 
it would have if they didn't go bankrupt. And uh, that album disappeared. But I had a couple songs on there, like uh, I think the first uh, Somebody's Watching, I did another song called that with Keith. But the first Somebody's Watching was on there. And uh, Life is Tight or The Shuffle. And Let's Start Living was on there. Their favorite of mine. I played live a little bit. Yeah, that's a real, it's a really good album. It's really strong from beginning to end. It's I, I, one, one of my favorites. But, you know, taking it back, just a song on there was uh, one of my favorites. I had done it. Someday that'll get released in a box set that I'm, I'm planning, but I don't know when that's going to be quite yet. My next question is this. You... Uh, take up with Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer. And and what is it like to fill the shoes of Greg Lake, who's one of my all-time favorite musicians that I grew up with in the 70s? Was was there a lot of pressure coming into that atmosphere? And how did you come into that atmosphere? I'll tell you, it's funny that we're talking in New Jersey, too, because Carl Palmer, right here where I'm talking to you, Carl called me because I was... Geffen was going to sign me as a solo artist, Geffen Records. And John Collodner was a very famous A&R guy, was the guy developing me. And he, they were in trouble with John Wetton in Asia, so John Collodner said to Carl, you ought to check this guy out. You know, it's got a kind of a rock, you know, a little bit of American thing in Asia might be good. And Carl liked my cassette tape again. And he called me right here, and I thought it was a joke. I was a friend of mine told me a joke. Oh, it's Carl Palmer, and a kind of a high voice, you know. After I realized it was him, he said, look, to the full circle, my manager, Brian Lane, is going to be in San Francisco in about three weeks with GTR, they're touring, and why don't you go and meet him, and then we'll get together. So I went there, and I you know, I met Brian Lane, and saw Steve Howe, Steve Hackett, and I saw that band a little bit, and uh, Nigel wasn't the drummer then, though. It was Jonathan Mover at that point. And after I met Brian Lane, um, Carl called and goes, look, um, I've been talking to Joe Lynn Turner. I'd like us to meet in New Jersey and go to Joe's house and him and Alan Greenwood, uh, and that you and I might start a band. Oh, wow. Hmm. I'm, I don't, I'm a big ELP fan, but I'm a big Joe Lynn Turner fan. I love his voice, right? Oh yeah, we do too. Yeah. Yeah. For Alan Greenwood and for, oh my God, one of my favorites. And so, I meet Carl in New Jersey. At a, uh, we met at the hotel because we flew in at different times. So he's uh, waiting for me. I get there and he goes, hey, Robert, how you doing? First time I met him in person, you know. He's a really lovely guy, lots of energy. We go up to the desk. It was kind of funny that the guys may help you. And, uh, and Carl says, yeah, Palmer and Barry. And the guy at the desk, this black guy goes, which one's Arnold and which one's Chuck? <laughs> it was just, it was just without dropping a beat, you know, and Carl kind of looked at me like he didn't get me you know, Arnold Palmer. Probably. Right. He doesn't he know who the hell these guys are. Right. Especially Arnold Palmer. But I'm, I'm cracking up. And so we went to Joe, Joe Lynn's rehearsal place and it was kind of odd. There was a lot of ego and stuff involved between Carl and Joe that, this was my first big break. I had a local band here that was doing really good, Hush, but I'd never worked with the top-notch geniuses of the business, you know, and the voice, oh, my God, fantastic mm-hmm. voice. And so it was kind of up to me to, to break this thing up because the chemistry was really bad. 
So I just told Carl, I said, Joe just told me he's not going to do any of our songs. We have to do his songs. Carl said, what? Uh-huh. Said, yeah. <laughs> Carl said, well, he goes, I'm going to go get my snare drum. Let's get out of here. And he took <laughs> the step up and we walked out. <laughs> and that was it. Wow. And I've never told anybody that because it's, they, they don't live in New Jersey. They wouldn't get quite the, uh, right. the, the ego thing between the two. I mean, here's Carl Palmer, uh, one of the biggest arena bands ever, ELP, and Joe Lynn Turner, one of our great singers. And I got two roosters there, you know, and I'm like, oh, oh without a doubt. Yeah, totally. Because, I mean, Turner had did the whole arena thing with Blackmore, too. So it's. And here I am. I'm just, I'm just a chicken kind of coming out of the egg, you know. <laughs> so I go home. That was it. Carl calls me. I want to fly out of London. Um, been talking to Don Aries. He wants to do something. And, you know, I wasn't really thinking about having a three-piece band with a keyboard player. And that's the first thing that struck me, that Carl was trying to recreate something like ELP. And I thought, that's just not going to work with anybody but Keith Emerson. I didn't know Keith Emerson then. But I was willing to go try it. And we tried it, and Don was a lovely guy. But it just didn't have any spark, kind of, because none of us were sparking, basically, you know. Right. Um, we, we didn't do that. We tried a few other things, and that's when Steve Howe called me. So after the thing with GTR, I, yeah, I had a really hard time with the bass player, but just because he was a wild, crazy guy, Phil Spaldi, he's a great guy. I didn't have a hard time to want to quit, but the singer was super hard on me and just didn't want to let me do anything. And I was writing all the songs with Steve. You mean Max Bacon? Yeah, Max Bacon, yes. Who has a phenomenal voice. <laughs> or did. Oh, my God, yeah. Except for that, you know, GTR did talking about, and you and I can say talking about, talking about, but uh, Phil can only say talking about. Right. <laughs> so when he's saying, I'm talking about you, it was like, oh, it's hard for me to deal with that perfect English kind of thing. But he made life really hard for me. He did not want me singing. He didn't want me really getting much credit for things. And he made it very clear, like when I went to sing the harmony parts, he'd stand next to me and he sings really loud and I don't. So he'd make sure I wasn't heard. Mm. Just silly stuff like that. And I could take it. It wasn't like I couldn't take it, but for some reason, after you know a year of that, and I got, I was there long enough for Arista Records to say, yes, we like the album demos. We're renewing the contract. You get your, your, your advance and everything. At that point, I said, I'm quitting. I told Brian Lane, I said, you know what? I know there's something better for me out there. And I, I know that I'm nobody and I haven't done anything, but I, this isn't what I want. And he was really upset with me and booked me a flight home. I think it was on a Wednesday. I told him on a Sunday. He called me on a Monday. He goes, Keith Emerson wants to have lunch with you before you head home. Really? I wasn't really nervous meeting Steve Howe. I was a big fan, but Steve was really mellow. He's easy to get along with, and it was just, it just felt good, you know. Um, but Keith Emerson, I thought, oh my God, this guy's not going to speak English. He, he's going to be like Einstein. He's talking equations. This is some kind of mad genius. I was really worried about it, you know. And I'm, I'm just really easy going. I'm not starstruck by anybody. Um, I, I just thought, oh my God, Keith Emerson, my God. And we had a two-hour lunch, and he was like talking to you guys. He was so comfortable. 
couple glasses of wine, a little lunch. She telling me jokes, you know, bad English jokes. Yeah. Um, it was magic for me to sit with this guy and see he was just a down to earth, real person. And honestly, from that point, when we were working together, they never had one good word to say about Greg Lake, so I never brought him up. Right? So, oh, really? Is that, is that I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just brotherly kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. You'd have to be there um, and work with these guys and know that Keith was a musical genius, but, you know, financially and um, organization-wise and stuff, he was just a musician, you know, that wanted to play music and didn't think about much else. Said motorcycles and cars and stuff, but he wasn't the organized one. I, I know from working with him that Greg was the guy that was the glue, mm. you know, and Greg also had the hit songs and made the most money with the publishing, which was a, probably a bone of contention when one of the reasons I, you know, had a little bit of animosity and stuff. Cause you know, lucky man was Greg's and in the beginning father Christmas, you make publishing money on that, especially in those days. And the guy that writes the songs makes more money than the band. So there was that going on. And um, I finally got to meet Greg after uh, ELP got back together, was kind of doing an oldies tour with Jethro Tull. And he was so nice to me. I thought he wasn't going to like me because I had done that little, you know, a couple of years stint and, you know, sort of, I don't know if he thought I broke up the band, you know, whatever, but he was so gracious and so nice. And he, I was like, hey, he takes a few pictures and put his arm around me, you know, and it, he was a great guy. And I am a huge Greg Lake fan too. And people, most of the time when they announce three on the radio and in interviews and stuff, they'd say, and here they are, Emerson Lake and Barry. And it made Carl crazy. He'd go, Lake's not in the band. Right. You know? <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm I'm a huge fan too. I you know, and then you know, during that period of time, he was also in Asia briefly, filling in for Wetton. He did that Budokan show, which is now out on like very high quality DVD. I've only watched it about ten times over. Yeah, and nobody could have done that job. Nobody. Oh, fantastic, fantastic, incredible! And he was in the band with Gary Moore, the, the, the band that he had in the early to mid-80s with Gary Moore. He did a couple of records that are just tremendous also. Yeah. Well, he's I wish that uh, I would have been able to spend more time with him and maybe even that he was in the band. You know, he would have been... I mean, he played a lot of guitar. It uh, That could have been... You remember they were going to add Hendrix at one time, call it help. I could have been Belp. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, now he was a good. He was, you know, people didn't realize he was actually a really good guitar player too, because everybody thinks that ELP didn't have guitar in it. Did it did have guitar in it? It was him. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, so many people would uh, write things about. Yeah, well, I miss Greg. He should have been there in this three thing, and I'd always say, I'm a huge Greg Lake fan. It doesn't bother me that you feel that way because I like it too. I said, but I'm lucky to be able to do this, but. I totally get it. I'm a, I'm a fan. Right. Right. It never affected me once really. So I I wanted to ask you now a little bit about Alliance and how that uh, band with Gary Phil uh, came together. I know you had a string of records, uh, Khalil, uh, you were on his label for a while and how that band all came about. And it's funny. It's Gary Peel. The way you say that. Does he really pronounce it that way? I, I didn't know that. We call him file. Hey, I always called him <laughs> Phil. I mean, you know, I knew him from back, you know, in Boston, and I just assumed it was Phil. 
It's it's peel. I don't know why, but it it doesn't look like peel. But that's what he. That's what it. Um. So I have my uh, Hush had broken up. My my band that did really well in the Bay Area here, and actually we toured a bit through the Midwest with Triumph and Black Oak, Arkansas. We we had a pretty good run. We'd always open for Journey and all kinds of Huey Lewis, that kind of thing. And I broke that up because there was nowhere for it to go. And I put together the Robert Berry band because I had all these songs that um, Hush couldn't do. They were a little more grooving, a little more whatever, you know, a little more, not really progressive, but, well, they were like the Indies Eyes CD. That was a Robert Berry band uh, material stuff that I had written. And um, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I just knew I needed to do something different. And the radio station here, KOME, uh, picked up on the album I had put out. And um, we were in their rock search thing, on one of these Bay Area favorite band contests, you know. And we were representing the big radio station here. In the middle of that's when Carl called me, and I was going to England. And I didn't really have a, I didn't really have a band at that point, but you know, John Collador had showcased the Robert Berry band, and that's where he first found me and wanted to put me with uh, Carl and different people. I'm trying to think here how the progression went with Alliance, because right at that time, it was probably a month before I was going to England, Jesse Harm, who was the keyboard player for Sammy Hagar, and David Lauser, the drummer for Sammy Hagar, came to see the Robert Berry band at a club called the Cabaret, because John Kalodner at Geffen had said, you know, Sam's going to Van Halen. This guy would be a great replacement for Sammy Hagar. Not that he's like Sammy Hagar, but the Sammy Hagar band is so good, and this guy's got something going here. So unbeknownst to me, they came to see me play, uh-huh. and my guitar player, Rob Fowler, who also does all my album covers, my websites, everything, he's a tremendous friend and a tremendous artist, um, he was a guitar player in Robert Berry Band, old Paul Keller. He noticed Jesse Harm out there. He goes, you know, Jesse Harms came to see us tonight. I said, oh, that's interesting. And then I got a call from David Lauser saying, hey, man, we're looking for a singer to replace, you know, Sam's gone, Van Halen. And I said, oh, man, this sounds like a great opportunity. Um, I'm going to England. I'm moving. Oh, okay, well, good talking to you, whatever it was, you know, I don't remember now. So after the few years I spent there, three years with GTR and, and three, I came back. They still haven't found anybody for their band, except for Gary Peel is a guitar player now in that, even though he's playing in Boston. Um, he left right from Sammy Hagar band to join Boston without missing more than two days of work, kind of. He wants to do something outside of Boston because in Boston you do what you're told, basically. You play what girls want. So he's got David. Jesse's doing something else. Was it with Sticks or REO? He's doing something. He's taken off to do something else. So they get Fitz, Alan Fitzgerald, who's the bass player in Montrose, but the keyboard player in Sammy's band for a while. So now Alan Fitzgerald, David Lauser, Gary Peel, and they want me to still be the singer and bass player. And they said, why don't we get together at Sammy's house up in Marin and give it a try? I went, son of a gun. I'm a huge Sammy Hagar fan. I just think that guy's dynamo, you know? Everything he touches is gold. And uh, he was a lot of energy around here in the Sammy Hagar band days. 
Um, it, it was just really impressive. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to go to Sammy Hagar's house. Yeah, I'll do this. Yeah. So we go there and we record a bunch of songs in his basement. And everybody has ideas and we all write songs. Except for David Lauser didn't write at that point, but he was a great drummer. And that's how it got together. We at the end of that two days at Sammy's, we looked at each other and said, this is a band. This, this, this works. We like this sound. And Fitz, who was a Night Ranger keyboard player too, right, sure. said, I'm going to go to my manager from Night Ranger and see if he wants to represent a new band. So it seemed like we had all the parameters kind of set to do something. The problem was that grunge was coming in and, you know, Nirvana was the flavor of the day, not Alliance kind of, you know, Alliance was still, Alliance actually had a little more of a seventies kind of rocking sound than an eighties rocking sound. I, I think. And, um, so we never really, uh, the management couldn't get us a big record label and Khalil found me in some way. So I sent him the songs. I said, this Alliance sings pretty good, you know? And I, I thought the Khalil seemed pretty well connected at a pretty big label. It turned out that it's a small label, but he's pretty well connected. So we, uh, that's how we got with Khalil and we've done four albums for him. Yes. The, the first album was, uh, came out in Japan under Bond of Union, and Khalil put it out under Alliance self-titled, and I think there were a couple of songs that were different on both releases. Yeah, a couple of different things, and I think we had a few things maybe from Sammy's uh, basement studio on there, too. Um, I don't remember exactly now. That's a long time ago. That's a lot of album. That's a lot of songwriting to go for me, and I was, even at that time, I mean, Gary had some music and stuff, but I was still writing all the melodies and words and stuff for the songs. And I look at how many songs I've written sometimes, and I go, what the hell? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at, you know, writing these things for six by six, and I'm doing all the lyrics. I'm thinking, I don't want to write the same thing over and over again. And I, I, so I sort of check them. And I go, well, I haven't, you know, and I, I don't know where the ideas come from, but evidently, See, being just a dumb musician, I say in my best New Jersey kind of <laughs> accent, but being a dumb, dumb musician, um, things strike me in the world that I don't really realize until I sit down to write a song. It's just kind of weird. Anyway, that's how Alliance came came together, and we're still friends. Uh, in fact, we're working really hard on the new album right now, and I expect probably it won't be May because 6 by 6 is coming out to new drums and guitars and new videos and stuff in May for the second album. And probably maybe July, Gary and David will be out here and we'll finish up the next Alliance album. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I wanted to focus on, uh, out of the Alliance albums, my favorite is, is road to heaven. I thought that was like the real standout for me. And the first three songs on the album, uh, road to heaven, I can breathe, which is my all time favorite Alliance song. Yeah, I, mean, I, I can breathe. It's just a phenomenal song, and make a stand. Where was your writing at that point? Because I thought that that album in particular was just the the songwriting was so strong. You know, I will say that um, I can breathe was a struggle for me because Gary sent me that. No, no, he was actually here. We we worked our songs out together as far as the music but they leave me with music. <laughs> There's no words, no lyrics, you know, uh, no melody. 
And Ike and Breathe had some weird timing in it. I kept chopping it up and changing it where it at least felt kind of smooth. And uh, Ike and Breathe, honestly, when Hush was touring through the Midwest and we'd drive through Nebraska and we'd drive through all that Midwest area with all the fields and everything, the farms, it really left an impression on me because my dad, mom, and my dad had a ranch here in the valley. His parents had a ranch. He's raised on it. And even though when I was growing up, there was you know a lot of buildings and stuff here, they talked about the ranch and the fruit trees and all the stuff. And I'm out there in the Midwest thinking, God, this sort of feels to me like it must have been when my parents were raised here in the Silicon Valley, which was the Valley of Heart's Delight, they called it, because all the fruit for the world came from here. And I just started writing about this, you know, in the fields of Nebraska. And, you know, it was like, it's sort of like a John Fogarty writing about uh, the Cajun uh, thing, the born in the bayou and all. He lived up in Marin here. You know, he wasn't a bayou guy at all. But um, things just sort of came out um, that meant something to me when I heard this guitar riff that Gary did. And the, the same thing um, was the first song in the album. <laughs> Road, Road to Heaven, which is it could could actually be like a CCM type of uh, a Christian uh, hard rock song. You know, I that was that's probably my favorite on the album. Actually, um, it's I write positive stuff mostly. I can't help it. I I'm just inspired by things that um, you know. Let's fix this. Let's move forward, kind of stuff. Let's let's be happy. Let's uh, you know do well to, for others. You know. And take care of the, the circle of influence you have. Don't worry about the, everything else. You know, you can only influence and, and fix so many things or help so many people. But that's the kind of stuff I write about and I think about. And I just felt on that album, it kind of came together. But it took six years or so for that album to be put together, if I remember right. Yeah, there was about five or six years in between records, yes. Yeah, and you know, I always say this to a lot because I produce a lot of people and recording on my studio. Every day is a different day. Every day you wake up, if you're writing, even in your journal or you know, for a newspaper, writing songs, every day looks a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you you leave it and you're thinking something else, you know. And that album, that ran the gamut for me. Uh, Make a stand was written for my daughter. My daughter in high school, all the friends she was with became kind of upwardly mobile. And I don't want to call them Kardashians because it wasn't that type of thing. But they were going to big colleges and successful. And she just wanted nothing to do with that. She kind of went the other way. You know, I don't want that. I don't need the popularity and the fancy clothes and all the stuff. And, and she ran away from home for two weeks. So it was really upsetting to me. That's not the kind of family I was trying to raise, you know, mm-hmm. where somebody's not happy. But she just rebelled against whatever was happening in school. And a friend of hers told me where she was. And I found her, grabbed her, put her in the car, and took her to a tough love camp in Utah. Mm. So I didn't let her get out of the car. I just drove her there. And as hard as it was, I signed away my parental rights for three months to that child because at certain points, I believe 
your kids aren't going to listen to you and they need to toe the line. It was almost like going in the military, you know, and that was so hard on me, but I had to make a stand if I was going to save her from where she was heading and she needed to make a stand. She had to kind of come back, I don't know, into the real world, whatever, into a hard for me to talk about Mm. today that girl is an amazing human being she is really strong she wanted to have a ranch she's engaged to a guy they bought a ranch up in the hills here she has two donkeys three horses nine head of cattle and, and and she has a horse trailer that has been all redone like with a bar and stuff in it where she does catering for parties where she pulls this horse trailer, this all golden white uh, for weddings, different things. Um, she is so amazing. And it, as hard as it is for me to talk about what her and I had to go through yeah. with her, um, I feel so good that she came through the other side, the person that she is and make a stand was her song. Wow. That's a great song. The vocal, your vocals on that are tremendous. The first three oh, songs thanks. on that album are, the whole album's great, but the first three songs, I think, out of all the Alliance stuff is really like the pinnacle of, of the writing of the band on, the, on that particular album. I'm glad to hear that. I, it, you know, I, I know when that album was done, we felt really good about it, you know, but it took a while. Right? It's funny, too, because we had a lot of that album Actually, not a lot that's on that album. We had a lot of songs. And I was, you know, I'm kind of the guy that's put them all together. I have the studio. I write the, the lyrics and stuff. And, you know, if if I'm not happy, it doesn't go anywhere. And I was not happy with what we had until that last jump where we got Road to Heaven and, and Make a Stand. And it's just all of a sudden, there it was. And, you know, we're doing the same this time. It's been... I'm not sure. It's been four years since that album. I, I don't know. Maybe longer. Huh? Longer because you had Fire and Grace that was was after that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That was, I think, 2019, I think, Fire and Grace. That's right. Yeah, so we've been a few years since the last one, and it just wasn't happening. And all of a sudden, I wrote a couple songs. Gary wrote a couple songs. I finished up lyrics that I think are good. And now David Lauser has a, a new song we worked on. And uh, he's having a lot of fun writing. And I think uh, now we have enough material to get another Alliance album out. And what label will this be coming out on to you? I'm not sure. Um, I am going to demand, I know that sounds kind of pushy, but I'm going to demand that somebody does a much better job for Alliance than it's ever been done before. And if Khalil wants to be that guy, I love the man. He's wonderful. He's been good to me. But, this you know this could be the last alliance album who knows and it's really good it's got some great stuff on it it could be our heaviest album too since uh, missing peace was a pretty heavy album and we're gonna it's gonna be much heavier guitar stuff what about the all for one project was that a one-off was that a frontiers uh special a one-off project that they put together or was that ever was that ever a band of, of any kind First of all, let me tell you, all those guys, of course, Gary Peel's in there. But uh, Matt, a great drummer, right? Terry Brock, great singer. All the guys are great. 
I personally, at the time where I said I would do that because Gary was involved, um, there was nothing going on. And then all this stuff happened with Ian and stuff. And I was really sorry I did that album. Not that I dislike it, but I don't want to be in any projects. I, I want to be in a real band. Alliance is a real band, even though we don't choose. Right. You know, we have history. We're like a brotherhood. We we love each other. We know each other's wives, our kids. We're, it's really, it's, Alliance is probably the band I should have had when I was 18 and we would have mm-hmm. done stuff, you know. But to be in a band that's put together um, just for the sake of putting an album out, nothing else, I should have done that. It, I'm still kicking myself. Like I said, it's not a bad album, but and you know, it's it's a little bit of the cookie cutter that uh, Frontiers puts out. Oh yeah, um, but, but you know, they do an ad. I get them because I, I, you know, Serafina was really good to me with the three point two albums. Um, those those couldn't have been handled better. Um, but I get their stuff on Facebook Reels and all that, and they'll have their ads, and they'll have like three or four different bands that are on each for like 15, 20 seconds, and when it's of the next band you can't tell if it's the same singer or not they all sound the same yeah, yeah it's just yeah. really weird you know and it's good music but it's all that i call fake uh, fake white snake kind of stuff yes you know well they've, they've <laughs> tapped into that whole the whole swedish scene uh, they've either taken over bands that were established before frontiers or they've created yeah. bands out of those bands and they're, yes, yes, those guys are all out of the David Coverdale school of singing, which is fine. But, <laughs> which is fantastic. But. <laughs> right. But it, it's it's highly redundant. And, um, you know, like they, they have certain established bands on their roster that they obviously can dictate to. But the vast majority of these bands, they, you know, it's uh, it's AOR melodic hard rock by by the numbers. Yeah. And that's not the place for you. It's not, you know, even for a guy like Terry Brock, you know, I mean, that's not the place for him really either, but. Yeah, and we get a Steve Perry clone once in a while, which yes. is always nice to hear, but um, it's just not what I should have done, you know, and, and it, it didn't hurt me in any way, except for that it's a project and I have two real bands that I'm in and um Six by six, of course, is the most important thing maybe I've ever done. I I think it's going to do better than three did with Keith um, because we're going to have longevity and uh, the the ideas are just so flowing. And because it's guitar-based, it has a wider audience. South America is really big for us. Germany, big for us. Uh, I think it's done fairly well in the U.S., it, it's just it's poised to, to grow more. Than, is there a jap? Is is there a jap deal in the works? You know, I do not know why. Uh, Frontiers always had me in Japan. Uh, Inside Out and Sony. That's it's a Sony label is in Japan, and we didn't get a Japanese deal. And I think it has to do with what Inside Out is negotiating or something with them. I I'm not sure. I you know I haven't got to the bottom of that because it's been so much work with the first album and now they want another one and i'm spending so much time on that that i don't want to think about the business too much right so i can't write songs mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about the 3.2 albums that came out uh, in the last several years uh, how did they all come about you talked about frontiers kind of treating you well with those how did how did that all come about I'm trying to think of when i first 
saw Keith, you know, Keith and I had done different things over the years. We stayed friends and he lived in Santa Monica, which in my mind was probably uh, the worst thing he could have ever done. He should have gone back to England where they know how to treat geniuses and stuff. But he moved to the U.S. where everything's cookie cutter. And um, I'd see him once in a while. I saw him at the NAMM show. And Saraceno had been bugging me for a three album for 10 years or so. I, we need another album like that. And, you know, can't you get them together? I said, no, I didn't want to talk to Keith about it because he just, he's the one that broke it up. He, he got letters that said that three was ruining his career and he took it to heart and he broke us up. And I don't want to bring that up and put that in our friendship. Well, they put out a three live album. And I don't know what year it was, 2015, maybe, in Bo- three live in Boston. Yes. And Keith signed off on the contract. He had some money. I'll sign off on it. I was really excited. Sure, some money, but hey, this was a big point in my life, three, and it's going to come back out. And when they got it all pressed and released it, they sent us a copy. And Keith, who liked to stay home with a glass of wine and listen to music, he thought he'd put it on. And it blew him away how good we were, which still brings a smile to my face because he called me immediately. He goes, Robert, yeah, Keith. He goes, we were a really good band. Mm. And I said, well, I always thought so. He goes, yeah, no, but the, the jamming and the fire in the plane, he was so excited because he had left it behind from the criticism of the people who wanted Great Lake back in the band and didn't understand that late 80s, going to 90s, that even Yes was doing songs in their music, you know, adding choruses and stuff. Right. And he was excited, and I thought, well, here's my chance. You know, Keith, this guy's been bugging me at this really big label. Um, Would you ever want to do a follow-up? I said, I get pretty good money from him. He goes, maybe. And there it was. And they, all right. I said, can I call Serafino and ask him what uh, they're talking about? Okay, yeah, get back to me. I called Serafino, said, uh, Emerson's on the hook. Said, what can you offer? He got a lot. I got a lot of money for Emerson and good money for me, but a lot for Emerson. And uh, Carl wouldn't do it. And that wasn't something that Keith cared about because he wanted to work with somebody else. We were going to use Simon Phillips. Now, him and Keith were friends and he's a great drummer. And uh, so Keith said, okay. Yeah, all right, get, get, let's, let's get going. I said, you know what? Let's do a couple songs before we sign a contract because I don't want to get stuck with something that we can't perform what we say we will. And when I called Serafino back, it was kind of funny. I said, well, Keith's in, but he wants another 10 grand. <laughs> Keith said that, but, but I thought, you know what? Keith was saying, who really cares about uh, the, the, uh, the, about the music? And so nobody cares about what I do. And I wanted to prove to him they did. Um, and he was, he goes, well, you should be my manager. <laughs> I said, well, these guys really want it, Keith. They, they like what you do. They want what you do. He goes, wow, okay. And we started working. And, of course, he had other problems at, at home and with health and different things that I wasn't aware of. I was aware of a few things. I knew about his arm. Um, I knew that he had a little bit of a heart problem. But... I just didn't know, you know, I didn't know that he was, you know, depressed a little bit and had, um, you know, was, I don't know. I, I don't really want to talk about that. It's just yeah. kind of very sad. Um, if, if he would have been watched and taken care of a little bit better, he would have been alive today. And that's uh, really hard for me to accept that uh, he wasn't uh, 
watched in the condition he was in. For a year, I didn't want to do anything with it, even though I had the keyboards on seven songs, and um, I was really happy with where we were going, and Keith was, and I finally, I was talking to his son, Aaron, and uh, of course, Aaron was very upset about what happened with his dad, and he goes, God, why, why would they want me to do that? And I said, you know, they want me to finish this album there, and he goes, I said, would you consider doing it with me? He goes, well, that'd be interesting. She goes, send me a song. So I sent him a song. He got right back and he goes, oh, I can't play like my dad. I, I play, but I'm just kind of a jamming guy, you know, because nobody plays like Keith, of course. Yeah. So I uh, told the record company that, and I said, I tell you what, I'm going to try to finish it because they know I play keyboards. You know, I started as a keyboard player. I had lots of... <laughs> Eight years of classical piano, two years of jazz, major in music in college. I can play keyboards. Not like Emerson, but I struggled for a year and finished it up seamlessly with the parts we already had with his. And sound, I have a Moog, I have all the things, some keyboards he got me. And I finished it up, and the record company liked it. They said, we got to put this out. This is really great. And the estate, the Emerson estate, wouldn't let me put it out. I said, well, Keith and I, we're going to do this. It, it, you, you can stop me? Yes. We don't want him known as a rock and roll uh, keyboard player. Mm-hmm. I said, what known as? We want him known as a composer. I said, you're kidding me, right? This is the Jimi Hendrix of the keyboards. This, this is the guy that stabbed knives. I mean, yeah. he's like, sure, yeah, he's a composer, but he's the only keyboard player to inspire millions of keyboard players and entertain everybody like a guitar player. Yeah. I said, you're kidding and they weren't kidding. They stopped me from doing it. And I kept saying, you know, I really like to do this. And well, we haven't got together with the, the tribunal, whatever they called it, you know. And I was uh, quite upset. I finally said, you know what? I figured out how to solve this. And there was this one lady that was sort of the point person for me with this thing. I said, uh, nobody but me knows what Keith and I did. Nobody. Um, I've sent something to Aaron. He's heard a couple songs, but he doesn't know if that's me or his dad, to be honest with you. And nobody knows except for me. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put this album out, and I'm not going to put Keith's name down for writing, for playing, for nothing. Nobody's going to know. I'm just going to say it's me. And they said, why would you do that? I said, so I could put out this album because you're stopping me from doing it. So there'll be no money for the estate. There'll be no credit for the Emersons. And of course, I would never do that because Keith meant much to me to do that. But I wasn't going to let him stop me without a fight. No, you called their bluff. Yeah, and I got an email a couple of days later. Okay, we've decided that you can go ahead and use all that, but you can't use his actual physical playing. You'll have to replay the parts since you say you can play. See, they didn't think I'd be able to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I already done it, filling in all the parts that we didn't have. Right. So in another three or four months, recreating every nuance that he had done already, which broke my heart. Um, But it's it's sort of like a Xerox copy. You know, it's not like it's not him. It's exactly what he played, exactly the keyboard, exactly the sound, everything about it. It's just his finger didn't push the key at that point. Right. And I brought famous writer down here, uh, Neil Prasad, who has a, a great website. And uh, I played him side by side 
Emerson's plane and my plane. And I asked him what he thought. He says, give me a minute. I'm having a real hard time, you know, digesting that that's not Keith when you switch over. Because I just switched back and forth and you couldn't tell the difference. And that's when I knew I had at least done the right thing as far as recreating sort of the sound and the style and what we wanted this album to be. So that, that's how those came about. And I tell you, Frontiers was was into it. And, you know, they I got, oh, my God, I must have done 100 interviews for each album. It was uh, labor intensive, but it was well worth it because it was important to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, it can, it can you know, it, it continue that legacy of Keith Emerson. And, you know, even though you talk about the problems you had there and, you know, with the estate and stuff like that, but, I mean, it was really a tribute to him, I guess, in a way, right? Well, for me, it was. I didn't want it to be that to the audience uh, so much. I wanted them to think of it as another three album, what we would have done with the knowledge we had gained over from the first time we had put out an album to when that was being worked on. Um, it, you know, and it came across that way, luckily. So it could have been, it could have been really looked down upon that I finished that album after he died. Yeah. I was worried about that. Because I wanted it to be attributed to to him and to what three meant and did, but I I didn't want to tarnish the reputation either, you know, and uh, I could have. Yeah. But people had arms. It was really nice. It, there was no bad reviews. Um, nobody said unkind things, and they certainly could have if they wanted to, to be the trolls that are so popular today, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was good. So uh, th- there's three albums, you know, uh, 2021 was third impression. Would, yes. there, would there ever be any, any more? Or is this kind of, you put it to bed now? No, uh, that's why when my manager said, what are you going to do next? I said, I will not do a three album without Keith. And I had material. And actually the third impression, the, the third album of three was a transition album. And it actually starts with a song that's a lot of acoustic guitar, the whole intro to it. And I thought either I'm going to bring the music fans that I have along with me into this more guitar direction, or they're just going to say, forget this guy, you know, with, without the keyboard thing, without Keith, we want nothing to do with him. And it wound up that that song was one of the favorites um, of a lot of people. And it was guitar. And so I thought, I made that transition. That was before, though, I had met uh, Ian Crichton, of course. And that was my plan to go in a more guitar direction. But I hadn't, uh, you know, thought about how or with who I was going to do that with. Yeah. So it's it's six by six, uh, full full steam ahead right now in, in your life, right? Definitely. Well, I'm, but I'm working on a new Alliance album because I have all the songs ready for six. Oh, yeah, right. I'm yeah. just waiting. Yeah, I'm waiting for Ian to do his next next version of them with what he fills in the guitars and everything then it comes back to me and hopefully before may when uh, nigel's out here and we do some drums so i'm on a hiatus from six by six writing wise and recording wise um and you know i have a recording studio here that's a state-of-the-art a neve console and everything a great drum set hammond b3 everything's here um great yamaha grand piano and I run a business five days a week uh, for people coming to record. So when I am working on my own stuff, I sort of take that time away from the studio business, which is fine. 
but that's the way I make my living too, in between things, you know. Before we let you go, though, Robert, I, I got to ask you one thing. I, I have a friend uh, by the name of Andy who lives down in Georgia, and he's a huge fan of yours, but he's also a big fan of the band Tempest. And I know this is a band that you have history with. Uh, they are an Oakland, California-based uh, band, and you've produced a number of their albums over the years. I guess you would call them kind of like a, almost like a Celtic rock uh, band in a way. Uh, they got like some... Uh, fusing European and American folk uh, with Prague and everything. And um, he wanted me to ask you, he had a question. He wanted me to ask you about how did you kind of get hooked up with them? Number one, but number two, I know in 2020, you know, in the middle of the pandemic that we had these, these social distancing type of things where a lot of artists did stuff over the internet. Um, And you did some, uh, a couple shows, I guess, a social distancing shows with them where I think you played keyboards. No, I actually had them in the studio and I recorded them live and put it out on, uh, gee, I forget what it was, in FaceTime Live or whatever it was, right. uh, Facebook Live, something like that. And I, I play keyboards on their album. I do it at Hammond B3. And I think I've produced 13 albums. You know? I mean, a lot of albums for them because they've done Caliban, the acoustic thing, and a, another thing down here. A lot of work with, with Leif Sorby, who's the leader of Tempest. Mm-hmm. And um, he even did a little bit of work on the Wheel of Time soundtrack that I did. And uh, I wanted to, during that time period where COVID was uh, ravaging the country, I got my first booster shots. But at that point, I was one of those guys who said, you know, I'm really healthy. I think the only way I'm going to get past this is if maybe I get COVID every year. And some people said, well, you're you're stupid for thinking that. I said, I know, but, you know, that's kind of what I'm thinking now because – I think this is going to dumb itself down and we're going to be okay. So that's my prediction. And I called Leaf and I said, Leaf, if you guys are good, as long as you, you know, are sort of your family, did you guys still rehearse and write together? You get together and you're not going to bring any like, you know, COVID germs in here outside of things. I want to do some live stuff for you here and you guys can sell it, make some money. And it'll help you survive during this time. Because that's all Leaf does. Tempest is his his business, you know. And I want them to survive. So I gave him that time. And we had, uh, it was really good. The, the band was superb. Um, the recordings came out great. Um, I, I, it, everything it, it needed to be it was just one of those magic things during a time when a band couldn't make any money touring that uh, worked out pretty good. I don't know if that answered the question quite yeah, a bit. No, that's kind of veered off a little I'm bit. I'm walking up to the studio here because I have to meet somebody for dinner in a little bit. Teddy Clemente is going to do another album. Okay. And Teddy's got a heavy metal thing. And that I sort of, you know, he gets the songs together. Then I finish the writing on them to kind of tune them up. And David Lauser flies in to do the drums. I do the bass. He has a singer and a couple of guitar players and, he uh, puts the rest together, and they're good albums. But we're uh, meeting for a pre-album uh, dinner. That's right, it. Nice. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let you go. Yeah, we'll let you go. And uh, so we appreciate your time, and it was a great talk. I, I really appreciate it. I had Thanks, a lot of Robert. Fun. Appreciate it very much. Well, I, I appreciate talking to you guys. I tend to blab a lot and, and you know, get off track and everything no, else. No, no, so you, you were that- on point. We Believe me, we've dealt with some blabbers. Uh, you're not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Well, I appreciate uh, that you guys knew uh, a little of the history and stuff, too. And um, there's some albums that I'm really proud of 
lot of people don't ask me about, especially that taking it back and in these eyes, you know, that's uh, that that was an important time in my life because there wasn't a lot else going on. I mean, I was playing with Sammy Hagar, but Sammy Hagar is Sammy Hagar. He's not yeah. Sammy Hagar and Robert, Bear, you know, right, <laughs> so, right. you know, it was, it's good to hear that uh, people still know about those. And, um, I hope to talk to you guys again when six by six comes out with a new one. Yes. No, we'll yeah, definitely be, be in great. touch. Thanks again. Take All care. Right. All right. Bye. Take Thank care. Bye. Bye. of Nebraska, you can see beyond the wind, you can ride until exhausted from the beauty you take in, look down from the highest mountain, through miles and miles of life, heavy heads working hard to find comfort in this time, and you can feel the earth alive beneath your feet, and your senses come alive with the Can't you feel it? Is it cold? And my soul feels like it grew up in the